Hey friends, your pal Mike Shea from Slide Flourish, here with another episode of the Lazy D&D Talk Show. In this weekly show, we talk about all things D&D. This show is brought to you by the patrons of Slide Flourish. If you want to help support shows like this, get access to all kinds of exclusive adventures, previews of upcoming material, previews of videos that are coming out, and access to a dedicated Discord channel, you can do so by becoming a patron of Slide Flourish. The link are in the show notes below. Yeah, we got a lot of fun things to talk about. So later this week, if you're watching this on YouTube, you will see two new one hour, I think both are a little bit more than an hour videos. One in which we did a deep dive of Strixhaven and another in which we talk about how to quote unquote make it in the industry of RPGs and D&D. I will give spoilers for that one. There is no easy answer, but there's a lot of talk and discussion. There's a lot of things that I was kind of noodling through. So no good, clear answers. I think some reasonable courses of action, things that you might do that might help, but I wouldn't exactly call it advice um, because advice is very dependent upon the situation and timing and the people and what you've got available and everything else. So any thoughts, impressions on the Strixhaven adventure? Yes, you will see a video. You, if you're watching on Twitch, there is a video I did, I think two videos back where we went, did a deep dive of Strixhaven. I think like an hour and 20 minute video on Strixhaven. And that video will be out on YouTube, I think on Tuesday. So you'll be able to see the edited version of that available on Tuesday. So let's take a look at what we are going to talk about. Here is today's agenda for the talk show. Uh, so we'll start with a Lazy DM's Companion update. If you are not familiar familiar with the Lazy DM's Companion, uh, the Lazy DM's Companion is a book that I, that I ran a Kickstarter for in October. It seems like a long time ago. And we are deep in production. So we are, I'm getting new art and new maps every week. I've seen lots of previews of things that are coming out. So all of the art and maps are on track, which is outstanding. The stuff is going to be really cool. We have three new cartographers that are working on maps for it. And we have, and Matt Morrow is continuing to uh, pump out art for the book. So that is great. If you backed it or pre-ordered it, you can still get the full edited, laid out version of the book that has everything except the maps and art. If, so you can use all the material right away. Uh, if you pre-order it, you'll get it right away. If you backed it on Kickstarter, you can get it as soon as you fill out your backer kit survey. So that is good. If you are about one in 10 backers, roughly, about one in 10 backers have not filled out their backer kit survey. The backer kit survey is the only way to receive your products for this Kickstarter. You will not receive it any other way. Little birds won't come and deliver it to your door unless you fill out the backer kit survey. If you backed it and you have not seen the survey, send me a message through Kickstarter with the email address you want to receive your survey at. That, that last part is crucial. I can't communicate with you and I can't give you the survey unless I have an email address that works that you will receive information at. Send me your email address in a message on Kickstarter and I will get you squared away. You will get the survey and you'll be able to fill out everything. But if you have not seen a survey and you backed it and you're wondering, where's my stuff? If you haven't seen a survey, you're not going to be getting the products. So make sure to fill out your survey. Again, about one in 10, nine out of 10 people have filled out their survey at this point, which is great. And BackerKit periodically hits you and reminds you over and over again. I don't have any control over that. I can't send out new updates, but I'm pretty sure you would have received about 35 updates saying, hey, please fill out your survey. So if you haven't seen those 35 updates, that means we don't have a working email address for you. And we have no way to contact you and let you know how to get your stuff. So please do that. Really outstanding. I can't wait. I can't wait till this book is, is in hand. Uh, I'm working with the printers. I just sent all the specs to two different printers. I think we're probably likely to print in Canada and in the Netherlands. Uh, we're going to print batches of books in both places. And that way we can ship to America and Europe 
without having to cross the ocean. And then anybody, Australia is going to get, uh, a, a, there's, a, there's a way to drop ship a whole bunch to Australia, I guess. And then the other odds and ends throughout the rest of the world. So that is, that's going to be an interesting time, getting the physical products to people all over the world. So in my look at Strixhaven, I was disappointed to see, so generally speaking, I think the monster design, there's, there's 40 new monsters in the Strixhaven book. We're gonna, let's, let's pull it up right now. There's 40 new monsters in, in Strixhaven. And overall, I really like the design. I, I am definitely one for ease of play. And I, I like the idea that monsters are designed to run at their challenge, as, as Jeremy Crawford said, designed to, run at, to, designed to run at their appropriate challenge rating more easily, right? And I think particularly in the area of spellcasters, and, and one of the things that I really like in this, let's look at some, they have these different spellcasters, look like Witherbloom, Professor of Decay, right? Let's look at that stat block. So we have a CR7 spellcastery type creature, right? And, you know, all the stats are about right. And I like that, like, the professor makes two mortality spear attacks. It can replace one attack with use of spellcasting. Uh, melee or ranged spell attack, plus seven to hit, five or 120 feet, 17 necrotic damage, and the target can't regain hit points. Very straightforward thing. This monster is, is probably pretty easy to run at a CR7. That feels, that feels right. I don't, I don't know the math off the top of my head. 17 times two is, what, 34? That feels about right you know, for the amount of damage that it does, given its challenge rating. So I like this kind of thing, but I was disappointed and I've continued to be disappointed in the damage output of high, real high challenge rating monsters. And I'm talking about monsters that are generally above CR 10 and in some, in some cases up to CR 20. And the example are the five dragons that exist inside 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 Strixhaven. Their challenge rating, in this case, Belladros Witherbloom is the, the head of this college, right? Challenge rating 24. And it does 12 damage on a claw attack. And I've like, I've run. So when we did Fantastic Lairs, I ran a lot of high level battles, right? A lot of high level games. I've seen a lot of high level games. This kind of damage output that we're looking at for a monster like this is not going to really threaten any, not, I'm not even talking about optimized. I often get the like, oh yeah, but you're running for a bunch of optimized players. I'm not running for a bunch of optimized players. I'm running for normal players who are, they build, they're not building completely dumb characters. They're not building characters that are totally unoptimized, but it's not like they're picking a lot of weird stuff or five different kinds of multi-class in order to, to break stuff. They're just playing like fighters, right? But a fighter barbarians like this is not going to do anything you know they're the claw attack of 12 damage is not going to do anything right like these are really not you know they're, they they don't do a lot and all of them in strixhaven are like this all the high cr cr24 legendary monsters now the math if you go through the dmg and try to figure out like how they got to where they got to with this it generally works out right? It generally works out, except I just don't think that that damage is enough. And what bums me out about this is I see this as the canary in the cage for morning, for, for, for the new Monsters of the Multiverse book, which is coming out in a month, right? And in, in January, we're going to get Monsters of the Multiverse, which is going to redo all of the monsters from Volo's Guide to Monsters and Mordenkainen's Tome of Foes. And a bunch of other monsters, I think, right? If I understand correctly, they're taking a bunch of monsters that were published in, uh, in non-monster manual source books. And they're updating them in the new Watsy style. And I'm just afraid the high monster, the high CR stuff is going to be too weak because they, 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 Wizards seems, 
adamant about continuing to hang on to a mathematical formula that creates monsters that, in my opinion and in my experience, are too weak for their challenge rating. At CR is probably 15 and above, right? So what do we do about this, right? I'm, I, I can sit and complain or I can do something about it. And I, I try to aim towards doing something about it because one of the great things about this game is that we can do we can do things, we can fix it. So let's talk about how do we fix it. And I have three different possible options for you. Three different ways that you can work with high CR monsters, right? And, and, and try to fix their damage if you have a problem. I'm not saying you should do this, right? If your experience is that high CR monsters don't do enough, here are three ways you can fix that. If you don't have a problem, you don't, you don't need to do these, right? One is I, I have a quick fix, particularly this works well for legendary monsters like this, for high CR damage, give it five attacks, right? At twice the challenge rating of the monster. So in this case, that Belladros Witherbloom would have five different attacks it might do. And those, you might say like two claw attacks and then three claw attacks as legendary actions. And each one would do about 48 points of damage because it's CR 24. That seems like a lot, right? And it is a lot. And it'll scare characters, right? That's a lot of damage. Five at twice, at two times the CR. This is actually pretty close to the math of the DMG if you look at the damage output of a CR 24 monster. Like, let's take a, let's take a quick look, right? Getting real good at finding this stuff fast. So let's look at a CR24 monster. Now I'm I'm I know that like the rest of this stuff is important, but let's so let's look at this. Like 195 to 202, right, is the amount of damage per or 212 is the amount of damage that that monster should be putting out in a given in a given realm. And and if you I guess if you divide this by five, it's about 20. You know, average on this is about 200, right? And if you divide 200 by by 48 you're gonna get about four to five so it's a little high right but i think it's okay to go a little high i think this chart is also a little low right so if you give it you know generally speaking if you look at monsters if you and i did this right if you take monsters of challenge rating 20 to challenge rating 30 and you figure out roughly and you average this these these damage outputs here right? This is the damage output per round that a monster should do. And, and figure out the math. It generally comes out to a little less than 10 damage per challenge rating, right? 10, 10 times, the amount of damage here is about 10 times the amount of damage here. This one actually looks a little less, right? Because you look at 140, you know, 26, this would be 260, you know, 29 would be 290. This, this one, like that looks right, you know? So you can see it really peaking up at the end here. It's close, right? And so the, the way to work out the math to make it a little bit easy is five times twice the CR. Five attacks at twice the CR of the monster. So that's one thing you can do, right? If you want to replace the attacks outright, you can do that. A slightly harder way is to take 10 times the CR damage and to divide it by whatever number of attacks you want to do. So if you're giving it breath weapons, you're giving it other sort of big attacks, take the challenge rating of the monster, multiply by 10. So at 26 would be 260. Take 260 damage, divide it up among the attacks that you plan to have. If you only plan to have three attacks, so you divide it by three. If you have more than that, you know, so on and so forth. If you're going to do an area attack, like a breath weapon, you have the amount of damage for that weapon or, yeah, or, double, or double the amount of damage that that weapon takes to dish out that amount of damage. So a 200 point breath weapon would in fact be 100 points, if that makes sense. Basically, you, you count it as though it's tw two attacks because it's going to hit probably more than you know, two or more people. 
but an even easier way. The, the easiest, laziest trick, which I, I like and does not worry about math, is double the amount of damage that monsters do. Double the amount of damage. If you look at a monster and it looks like the damage is low, just double the damage, right? And if you look at Belladros Witherbloom and you say, we're going to double the damage that Belladros does. Now you've got a bite attack that does 28 points plus 12 necrotic on a bite. That's nice and meaty. Does 24 points on its claw attacks. Not bad, right? And it does a bite plus two claws and then three extra claws. Now you're talking, you know, 24 damage. The breath weapon is pretty good though. 39 plus 39. You, you could double it because I bet you characters that are really high CR might have a way to deal with it. But that would be a lot because then you're talking about, about about 160 points of damage where right now it's doing close to 80. So it's 78 points of damage on a breath weapon. So its breath weapon is probably fine without modifying it. But, you know, we can double the claw attack. In fact, if you might say, well, the bite's probably fine, but we're going to double the claw attack damage. That works too. So doubling the damage, if you're having trouble, and this is all about monster dials, right? We talk about monster dials, but I think this is a case where looking at this monster, I could, I think it could, you could, you could double the amount of damage of its melee attacks. And I bet it would be pretty solid. That's if you're running, like not a lot of people are running a CR 24 dragon, right? But if you did and you wanted it to be meaty, double the amount of damage and it's probably pretty good. So that is my thoughts about how to fix high challenge rating monster damage because i just don't think high challenge rating monster damage does enough we haven't done a product spotlight in a while it's been i think a few weeks since we've done a product spotlight and i was contemplating what to look at and i at the same time it was going through a lot of cobalt press products and realized i had not done one for southlands so southlands is a kickstarter from was it as far back as a year ago? Richard Richard Green, who is uh, one of the writers, uh, were you the, what's, what's, what's your credit here? Let's look at your credit in this book. Richard Green was the designer of this book. And I think Richard Green is here today in the chat. Are you here, Richard? And if so, can you talk about when this happened? Go Richard, says JVC. Hey, JVC Perry's here. We can just look it up, right? November, November 2020 is when this Kickstarter came out. And had 2,700 backers. So what is this? So Southlands is actually a, a, a suite of products. It is a number of different products put together into a big Kickstarter. And it includes the Southlands World Book. It includes the Southlands Player's Guide. And it includes a book of adventures, a city book and adventures called The City of Cats, which is both a source book a source book and a, and, a, and a book of adventures. Like all of the Kobold Press products, pretty much all of them, I don't think I've ever see, seen one where I was like, oh, that wasn't great. They've all been fantastic. Very high production value, beautiful, beautiful artwork, uh, really just good looking stuff, great physical, you know, great physical book, right? I've got the, I've got the, the physical book right here. And whenever a, you know, great, you know, beautiful, beautiful printing, and whenever I back a Cobalt Press Kickstarter, many times, most of the time when I back a Kickstarter, I back at the PDF level. I just get the digital products. And it's because I just don't have enough room in my house to fill it up with physical stuff. When Cobalt Press does one, however, I almost always get the physical, uh, the physical book because their books are so good looking and they're, they're excellent. In my opinion, they're as good as anything you can get. They're as good as anything Wizards of the Coast puts out. They're fantastic books. So Southlands, like other Kobold Press books, is built in the world of Midgard. Midgard is the Kobold Press default campaign world. There is a huge Midgard world book that you can get. A great big, 
encyclopedia that covers this vast world. And what Cobalt Press has been doing is taking parts of this world and building source books around it, which is very cool. They did one for Margreve, the ancient forest of Margreve. They did a big adventure that Richard Green also worked on, I think, or, or, or led the development of, right? Which was Kingdom of the Ghoul, Empire of the Ghouls, another big, lots of connections to the Fae. I think there's like a Shadow Fae campaign setting that kind of came out. So really, really cool settings that are coming out that cover all of Midgard, but Southlands covers one particular region of uh, Midgard. I think, is there a map in the, at the very end? Let's find out. Oh, froze. Oh, I froze again. It's so big that it's easy to lose track of where it is. So it covers a specific region of Midgard that covers, oh, look at the cool maps, man. That covers a, a, desert, a desert area. One of the tricky bits with, with Midgard in particular and with books like this is that Midgard is roughly built around regions of our actual world, right? So if you look at the Midgard map and kind of squint, it actually doesn't look dissimilar to a map of the world. And the various regions that exist inside Midgard take on some of the characteristics of those regions in the actual world. The, the tricky bit is doing that with respect to that portion of the world. This is something we've all become much more cognizant of over the past couple of years is not doing stereotypes of the people that live in these worlds or the people that used to live in these worlds. And it was, it was something I was initially concerned about when I saw this book, but I did see that they brought on two cultural consultants for this book, hopefully. And, and we don't know what the development was like. Richard knows what the development is like, but hopefully that offered input to make sure that it was, it was giving respect to these areas and not doing so in a, in a way where, you know, a bunch of white Europeans wrote a book about what it's like to live in the Middle East right? That's the kind of thing we don't want to do. That was actually something I was concerned about when I first saw this and saw that it was coming out, but I was glad to see that there's, that they did bring on cultural consultants to work in this particular area. So that is, that is good. It is a great big book. It is 300, more than 300 pages, right? Covering all kinds of, of areas. Again, gorgeous, you know, one of the things I just love about books like this is the artwork, right? The artwork is absolutely fantastic. The PDF is very well done. Mark Radel did the design of the PDF. Mark Radel has done stuff that I've, I've had, in, he's done work on my books, you know, really great stuff. And, and, you know, I, it starts off with exactly the kind of thing I like. Oh, I love this. Look at that, 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 that's some kind of creature rising up there. The ruins of Caldura, treasure laden heroes fleeing an undead minotaur, ran headlong into a hungry sandworm. There's some, there's some adventure to have. Seven Secrets of the Southlands. Adventures of the Southlands are full of excitement and over-the-top action. Whether characters want to blaze a trail through unexplored lands, uncover lost relics, or put a stop to evil conspiracies led by dastardly foes. Southlands is a good traffic. A vast continent, a land of endless action. Three ancient powers. Who are they? First, Empire of a Powerful Divine Titans, Glorious Mbasso. Once ruled over the Southlands, the Titans' rule has long since ended, leaving abandoned cities and secrets. Trio of mighty elementals known as the Wind Lords still hold dominion over the Stone Desert, the Wind Lords Alliance. And finally, the living gods of Nura Natal control the desert lands along the magical river Nuria. These gods meddle in the affairs of mortal subjects and even walk among them in their, uh, as their whims dictate. The goddess Beset, for example, Bastet, for example, is not an uncommon sight in the city that takes her name. Divine sparks for the taking. 
history of the Southlands is marked with the rise and fall of divine beings. So heavy divine thing. That's kind of interesting. It's sort of like mythic Odyssey with Theros a little bit. The gods, the gods are are in your in your world. New cultures and races. Several new options. Humans are certainly most numerous, but we have dwarves, Asimar, gear forged, raven folk, tieflings, cat folk. There's a lot of stuff with cat folk, right? This is if you want to play a cat, this is the place to do it. Jinborn. Uh, and an insectoid race, lizard folk, minotaurs, rampage. And so there's all this like new cultures and races. And one of the things that I like about how Cobalt Press does this and how Midgard does this is because we have this big campaign world, you can find a divine spark and gain godly power. Does godly power include that new spell that, that lets you make force rerolls? But one of the neat things about these kind of campaigns is they come with a player's guide, right? So I'm, I'm going to jump back to the to the campaign setting, but we're going to take a quick look at the player's guide because we just saw that it has all of these new kind of races and classes or races in them. And the player's guide has a bunch of races. So I talked in previous uh, shows about the idea that like when we're doing a D&D campaign, that it can work out for us. I think it works out better if we say what sources we are allowing in this particular D&D campaign. You don't say, oh, you can just play everything, which means you're going to have like, you know, an elephant, an elephant guy with a strange class, you know, from some other place. And like, it means that you're going to have characters that don't fit the campaign setting. Well, because Cobalt Press puts out a player's guide, generally, and they've done this, I think, for many of these settings, because they put out a player's guide along with their campaign settings, you can say you can use, you know, the player's handbook, Tasha's, Xanathar's, plus the Southlands player's guide, right? And that limits the races that are available, but it offers up races that fit the campaign setting that you're that you're playing in. And that's a little different than if it, it was just a campaign book. And now there's actually a player's guide. And if your players are really into it, they can buy one, right? And they can have a nice, how big is this? This is another, another big meaty tome, right? A 74 page, you know, 70, 74 page book. So... Lots and lots of stuff in here. Lots of different races. You know, we have our cat folk races. Beautiful artwork, of course, right? Lion, that looks like a lion dude. Lion dudes. Dwarves have kind of a different take, right? We have gnolls that aren't just uh, demon spawn from Yinagu. They are an actual, you know, a race like everybody else. We have, who else? A bunch of different human human variants. The Jinborn, Right? which are kind of cool minotaurs and these crazy insectoid people. So lots of different kind of fun. Oh, and raven folk. I guess then there's a side raven folk, lizard folk, ramag. What what, what, what ramag are? Alligator people, trollkin, lots of stuff. So then we have specific backgrounds that exist that you can choose from, uh, which again would be great for players to 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 pick to to make characters that fit that style to fit this campaign new character options right and you could say like you know yeah richard green says you don't need the player's guide to run the game but it'd be great if you did right and i would probably say if you're gonna bother to, in my opinion if you're gonna bother to run a campaign it's one thing if you're gonna buy the southlands book and harvest it for parts which you are absolutely in your right to do but even if you're gonna harvest it for parts isn't it kind of cool to offer new character options that the players can use in your harvested world like obviously you don't have to play these only in midgard right but the way i see it like if you're gonna play a big campaign a year-long campaign set in a world like this i don't know why you wouldn't buy the other books because the amount of time you're spending probably makes the dollar value worthwhile I think, right? 
I mean, I bought it and I, I don't have an immediate plan to run it, but I know if I do, boy, I'm going to, I'm going to get this new Bardic colleges, new cleric domains. So now you have a lot of new class stuff, right? And Cobalt Press stuff is usually pretty good. It's pretty well balanced. You never know. Like there's going to be weird stuff, but there's weird stuff in Tasha's. So, oh, look at this one. That's gory. Woo. Holy Trampler. Look at that. Like, when do you want to play like a Minotaur Cleric Holy Trampler type? Or is that a Paladin? What, what kind of? What, that's a martial tradition. So cool, cool stuff. Lots of, lots of different options here. Lots of character options. Again, really well put together. You know, awesome, awesome stuff. Roguish archetype. Look, there's like a cool null rogue. Who doesn't want to be a null rogue, right? Really, I just love it. It's just great stuff, right? So... So that's the cool bit is like, you know, from a DM perspective, you have this new whole campaign world, but then you can also take this book and you can slide it right into your campaign setting. Hey, my mom is here. Hello, mom. What else? Oh, there's the map, but you can just write. So, oh, oh, what is that? You know, huh? That's like nothing I've ever seen before. That's totally not Africa. Right. And that's the idea. And I'll tell you, like, I wonder, you know, I mean, Midgard is the way Midgard is, but you got to wonder like if it's, you know, that, that, that is something where you could say like, boy, I really don't want anything. That's just like a, a fantasy wrapper around a real world. And it's not right. There's a lot you can take from it, but you can obviously see that one of the reasons, and I think Wolfgang Bauer mentioned this when I, when I, when I talked to him about this idea, he said, yeah, that, that design is there to make it a little bit easier for people to uh, recognize what the world is like because they have a model already in, in our heads, but it's also dangerous because you can, you could be, you know, you could have kind of bad stereotypes for that sort of thing. You know, you could, we've seen it in the age of, in the old ages of, of D and D. So it's, it's a, you know, it's a dangerous thing to do too much of a wrapper around, around the existing world. Lots of cool detail. Like, oh, man, I can't, I, I, I can't get over the art. Right. I mean, I think when you're, when you're buying books like this, you're, you know, half your money is going probably more than half your money is going to the art and it's worth it. Right. So all kinds of great stuff in here that you can use. I don't even know where to begin. Right. Like other than it looks really cool. And I think, I think Richard, you can remind me Wolfgang Bauer was involved in Al Kadim, right? The, the forgotten realms area region of Al Kadim. I think Wolfgang Bauer was, was he the, the lead guy on that? I think he was the lead guy on that. So you can tell that there's a lot of the bones of Al-Kadim are, are in this source book. So if you like some of that old school way, look at that. Like dragon incursion. Big histories, right? Nura Natal. Land of ancient magic and cyclopean monuments. I love it. A land, desert, desert Syracuse, and time lost necropolis. Uh, necropolis. Like, necropolises. His first TSR book was for Al-Kadim. One of the things, again, I, I mentioned this when I was going over my preview of uh, Strixhaven. Strixhaven? Yeah. That if you're building a campaign world, right, you want to make sure it is a world built for adventure, that the, the hooks for adventure are, are wired into it. It seems obvious, but sometimes it's not. And sometimes you're like, you build a whole world out and there's nothing actually to explore or do, right? So you want like, you know, lands of ancient magic and cyclopean monuments. You know, where are the dungeons in this place? Where, you know, where can discovery occur? Where can, where can, you know, people dig into this, right? That's what you want to, oh man, look at that dude. That is badass. God King Theromosis. Thutmosis. Th He's lawful good. That guy doesn't look lawful good. 
he looks angry more more really great maps sand ships right that's right out of the sand ship idea isn't that right out of uh dark sun you know so you could you could probably you know if you want to touch a dark sun you know here's a here's a place for it lawful good slash angry nuria the, the city of nuria so just just great stuff so that is that is the source book itself right and then the third book in this series is called the city of cats and it was i think it was i don't know if it was a stretch goal or if it was intended it is a shorter a shorter book this one is 70 uh, oh no it's a great uh, never mind i take it back yeah because i think it's a hardcover right yeah so it's a hardcover as well it's a second hardcover book called city of cats and if you wanted to dip into this whole thing without like you know the whole thing i i'm pretty sure you could just start with city of cats because it focuses on one city right and then has a series of adventures yeah parapet the city of cats right bastet and you know very you know very kind of egyptian theme obviously right very you know clear egyptian theme only with cat cat people and this is a more focused source book. It has lots of information about this one particular city and what's going on in there. That's kind of a cool, like, status, you know, status status design. Yeah, Arango says, spiral campaign design for the win. Yeah, right? So I think, I mean, in this case, like, so, so when we talk about spiral campaign development, I'm usually referring to people building their own campaign worlds, right? And how do you build a campaign world that focuses on the characters and focuses on what they're going to do? And you have enough stuff on the outside, like the, the six truths of the world and the campaign theme and the the fronts, the villains, you know. But when you're buying one, when you're able to buy a campaign setting, this is where I get like, you know, sure, you're into your campaign. And I know half of DMs build their own campaign setting. So who am I to say no? But I'll tell you, you know, you're going to have a hard time competing with this, right? Like two big books, one that's on a whole region and one that's on one city. And that's not even counting the Midgard book, which sits on top of this. So talk about spiral campaign development. You have like your 600, I don't think it's 600 pages, but it's really big. You have your Midgard source book, which is huge. Then you have, you know, the Southlands book, which is 300 pages. And then you, the City of Cats that's sitting on top of that. Talk about spiral campaign development. But in that case, like all these people did all of this work, all of the money to make this book that you can buy for really cheap considering what you're getting, right? And considering the time and the energy and the involvement that went into this, you know, you're not going to be able to make this, you know, not for that kind of money. So, and when Cobalt Press puts out consistent bangers, why not give this setting a try? Yeah, it's interesting Cobalt Press is coming out with so much stuff that they're not only, it's not only competing with like all of the stuff that are coming out from other, from other companies, right? Other campaign settings and the stuff, of course, that's coming out of Wizards of the Coast. They're competing with themselves because I don't think we can run campaigns fast enough to use all of the source books that are coming just out of Cobalt Press, right? But on the other hand, and this is why I buy them, I just like to absorb. I just like to enjoy them, right? I don't, I don't need to run them all. I just want to look through and get ideas and kind of let my brain go off in directions that I'm not used to going to. Look at this, sights and sounds and smells of the cat world, right? Uh, a cat races by carrying a crying sturge in its mouth. Ooh, I feel bad for the sturge, right? Neat, neat stuff. And so big, big book that talks about the source, 
that, that talks about the city itself and all the stuff that's going on here, right? I like this. This, you know, sights, sounds, and smells. You know, a cat just walked by and winked at you, right? You catch a distant sight of a vast sand ship captained by a large subak. <laughs> awesome stuff, right? I just get excited by this stuff. It's so great, right? I love these random tables too, man. Don't, you know, random tables. So those are, that's the, the you get the city source book. Oh, that. She's, she's upset. Ghoul, ghoul person, right? And then you have a series of adventures that are set in this area. I don't know that they are all part of, I, I'm pretty sure that level wise, they, they stack on top of one another, but I don't think it's part of a major campaign arc. I don't, I don't think that this is a big campaign setting, but there are a number of independent adventures. I think this is mostly source book. Here we go. Here's, here's the adventure. Yeah. So cat and mouse, for example is the first hey look doesn't that that uh, that piece of art looks familiar yeah adventure four to six characters are first to second level so you get an adventure that you can just jump right into right and and i think that that is a great way to sort of get involved in this is play out an adventure that's set in the city that you're that you want to play in and it's like it's kind of neat that is that sort of focus on like spiral development do you like midgard i don't know do you like Southlands, I don't know. Do you like the City of Cats? I don't know. Do you like this one adventure, right? You're narrowing down to like, hey, let's play an adventure and let's see what this what this is, setting is like. And it, it just offers that. So I, I think like the utility of these books is so high. There's so much material, wonderful material, beautiful material, beautiful artwork, excellent writing from all of these books that are very table usable. You can just jump right in and go, right? And I and I I think that's outstanding. Let's talk about prices. I recommend you can get the PDFs, but I think I think you are you are best off. How do I just get to the store, man? No, go away. Boy, I'm not having a lot of luck with our website. There we go. Hey, perfect. All right. I searched for Southlands, I got Southlands. So there's the three products that we're talking about, right? The Southlands World Book, the Southlands Player's Guide, and the City of Cats, the City of Cats book. And I think for, you can get the hardcover and PDF for 60 bucks. And that seems a little high, but I think it's worth it. I think having both a physical and digital version of the book, I think works really well. I think, I mean, that's what I would buy. And again, the best, I'll tell you, and it's always after the fact, right? So we're just talking about Southlands now. And I think that this is the best way. Because I think if you buy the PDF separate, yeah, it's 30 bucks for the PDF separate, right? So thinking about like, well, 30 bucks for the PDF, $60 gets you the PDF and physical book, right? If you're if you're going to run it, then, then that's, a, then that's a, a good way. I think that that's a good way to get it. The City of Cats, which is also a hardcover, uh, hardcover book, is a 50 bucks with the hardcover and PDF. And the Player's Guide is uh, $25 for the softcover book plus PDF. And $12 for, $13 for, P for the PDF alone. So that, you know, I mean, together, that's not, that's not cheap. It's 60, 50, and 30, right? So math is hard. What's that, 140 bucks? So $140 uh, to get all three books plus the PDFs for all of it. And I, the Kickstarter, I don't think was, was, was that much, right? So like, if you have a chance to jump in on Cobalt Press Kickstarters, you definitely want to jump in on Cobalt Press Kickstarters. Seems like a lot, but again, if it's six of you around a table playing in a campaign for a year, probably worthwhile. I know it doesn't happen. I don't know if it happens all that often, but you know, it's the kind of thing where if you talked about it with your players and they said, yeah, this is cool. And yeah, we'd like to run a campaign here and this would be fun. Pitch in. 
right? Have them drop a few bucks and build build a library. So yeah, RPGs, you know, RPGs can seem expensive depending on one angle, but then on the other angle, when you think about time, the dollar per hour that you're of enjoyment that you and your friends are getting, I don't think it's that much, right? But I recognize that not everybody's in a position where they can they can just go ahead and drop 140 bucks for an RPG, right? That, you know, I get it, right? Still, I think it's an out. I think it's an outstanding product. I really, I really like this stuff. It's it's gorgeous. It's gorgeous work. Richard, is there anything in particular you would like people to know uh, about Southlands? About these books? Any anything that you anything like you know other than me just waxing on about how awesome it is? Anything you'd like to tell people about? Tons of adventure hooks, right? Yeah. So and and that is unsurprising. Right, that when you have a campaign world like this, you really want to have a campaign world where, yeah, you, you know, really easy to use at the table. Yeah, right. So, so clearly, good. You know, a, a design that's built to help DMs run games, which is which is what it's all about. I think these kinds of products, in particular, are undervalued among D and D products. I think that. Books like Southlands, books like Midgard and Southlands and Empire of the Ghouls, they're just as strong as the stuff coming out of Wizards of the Coast, in my opinion, and built by the people, by, by many people who have worked on many D&D products for a long time. They're excellent books. They should be getting as much attention as those books get, and uh, they are, are really solid. So if you are looking for this kind of adventure, if you've missed some al or you really want to run kind of a fun Middle Eastern-style adventure, I think you could do far worse than, than, than taking a good look at these books. I think they're three outstanding books. I'm really happy. Man, the art is so good. I can't get over, I can't get over how good the art is in this stuff. It's just fascinating, right? And that is Southlands, the Southlands Player's Guide, and City of Cats. Awesome. Awesome stuff. Oh, what I had a link for a pre-order bundle. The Southlands Bundle. Is there a bundle? I, I guess this is all of the different products that you can pick up on one page. So here is a single page where you can pick up any of the Southlands, Southlands material. Why can't... I will paste that into the chat. I will include that link in the show notes. I'm going to offer a quick tip an experience that I want to share from a game that I ran. Uh, I was running a my Rhyme of the Frostmaiden game, and I'm going to do a tip video about this. The, the, the challenge of getting players to engage with the game online. And I think it's coming from people accidentally talking over one another. And now that we have so much ex experience playing online, players are generally keeping their mouths shut because they don't want to talk over people. But it also means that they're not engaging. But every so often you have players who kind of recognize the fact that people aren't engaging and they will engage and they will be the ones to take risks. They'll be the ones to kind of go and touch things that might be dangerous to touch or to interact with things that might be dangerous to interact with. And they're doing it to move the story forward. But sometimes, like if it's in a dangerous place, that means they're the ones tripping all of the bad things. It means they're the ones getting surprised by monsters. It means they're the ones that are are, are failing at a puzzle and the and bad things happen, right? And you want to be careful about punishing the player who's taking the initiative to move the story forward too much. I don't know that I have a perfect solution for this, particularly because eventually there's a point where the world is solid and if they do something that a bad thing is going to happen. But I think I, I think you want to 
we, we want to be careful by saying like, we know that the character knows that it's dangerous. So they're not going to be surprised necessarily. If they see that there's like an, an ancient, you know, guard robe in a sewer, in a, in a, in a castle, and they see that there's a black horror, black horrible liquid at the bottom of it, the, and they poke it with a stick, they shouldn't be surprised when it turns into a black pudding, right? Because they knew it was a black pudding. They knew there's something terrible. Then that's why they were poking it with a stick. So I think that you want to like, you, you want to find ways to give them benefits, like maybe offer them advantage on their check because you know that they're being careful or on their saving throw. Like maybe if they are purposely going into a dangerous situation in order to trigger something because they like, we don't, we're not going to ever find out what this thing is. One of us is going to have to trigger, give them advantage on the check, on the save, right? So that they have a better chance of not getting hurt because they went through that extra effort. It's almost like thinking about the upward beat and downward beat thing and and really bringing it down to a micro idea, right? The idea of upward and downward beats, this comes from Hamlet's Hit Points by Robin Laws. And it's the idea that a good way to keep players hooked into your game is to have good things happen and bad things and good things and bad things and good things and bad things. You don't have to oscillate perfectly, but generally speaking, you don't want to have a whole bunch of bad things happen and no good things because people just get depressed and they break, they, they lose their immersion in the game. And you don't want too much good stuff to happen over and over again because it gets boring, right? It's like, oh, you know, it becomes a money haul kind of situation. So instead you want to oscillate, not perfectly, but you know, a few good things, a few bad things, you know, so on. You can almost narrow that down to micro events, and say, if if I have a player who's purposefully going forward, they should get something, even if they're going into a dangerous situation, if they're triggering a trap or they're doing something else, they should still, there should be something they gain from that, right? And the, that in, yeah, inspiration is the easy one, right? Giving inspiration, but you, you cannot, even if they have inspiration already, just giving them an instant inspiration. You get advantage on this check because you're going through this. Give them an give them something, give them a secret they can learn, give them first run at, at a benefit that exists, give them, you know, if they, sometimes they're like, ooh, that statue looks dangerous, and it turns out the statue is of an ancient dead god, but it's willing to put bless upon you, right? Think about how you can, how you can benefit the characters who are willing to take that step forward, because if you punish them over and over again, which is what I accidentally, I didn't, I, yeah, I kind of accidentally did it, I realized it after the fact, and it was a mistake, right? Of like, they did one thing and it was, they learned something. They did something again based on the direction of the rest of the group and it went bad for them. And then they tried to do something else and it went bad for them again. And they're like, I should just stop interacting with stuff, right? And that's not what you want. You don't want the one character who's willing to take those risks to be like, never mind, I don't have any. Yeah, it was like three things in a row that happened to this character. One, they triggered it, they, 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 they did a good thing and learned about a puzzle, but then they triggered a bad part of a puzzle and got hit with a trap. Then they interacted with a monster in a summing circle and the monster attacked them because they, 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 they were handing a hat over and the monster grabbed their arm and pulled them into the circle because I thought that was cool and maybe it would have been. But then they wanted to do something while they're in the circle and I said, you don't have the room to do it because the circle's too tight. And it's like, wow, I, I got nothing, right? And they were kind of like disenfranchised, like, oh, why, why, why did I do all this stuff, right? And you don't want to do that. So I was an experience that I had and a, and a tip I wanted to share. Let's talk about Patron questions. Let's look at some patron questions. These questions are from patrons of Sly Flourish. You can answer, you can, you can add questions. We, we do a monthly Q&A thread on the Sly Flourish Patreon. 
And I bring those questions into here, or I will talk about them in a separate video, or we discuss them on, but I like to look at these questions and see where things, see where, see where it leads us. We get some great questions from month to month. Steven says, my friend, my friends had a campaign that we started several months ago, but had to stop due to personal reasons. We wanted to start it back up again, but it's kind of been a while. I'm wondering if you had any fun ideas for re-engaging everyone in the world and stories other than like a short dialogue of, oh yeah, this is what happened last time. I've, I've, I've done this from time to time too, where we've had a, like a six month pause in a campaign, right? And one thing is like, no one is really going to remember where you were. Not really, right? So I think it's almost like starting it with a new campaign again. You want to, I, I, don't, I don't think it will be bad to have a session zero, right? And to kind of reestablish who the characters are, what they're trying to do, what the world is like, what the truths are of the world, and, and, and kind of start up that. I don't think you need to do like a full session zero, but I think having sort of a re-intro can work well. And then I think a reboot to the campaign. Think of it like a reboot to a TV series, right? Start, you don't have to start it completely over, but think about it from like an entirely new campaign's perspective with the same characters in the same story, but an entirely new way to start that story over again right? And what's the strong start? What's the big hook? What's the main part of the adventure? Maybe you jump a little bit ahead in the time period so that it really feels new, right? Maybe you, you have a six month gap between where it ended last time and where it starts this time. And maybe there's some downtime about what the characters have been up to during this time. Think about it like a reboot in the campaign. It's a thought, right? Think about it as a reboot in the campaign. And then start strong, you know, come up with a real good hook and kind of have a new adventure with these characters in this world, in this setting. And then, and then I, I think I've, I've done that. So I did that when I was doing Princes of the Apocalypse, we had a big break. And I just kind of thought about the new one as an, as a standalone new adventure. I think it was the last, I think it was the last session we were doing. We just wanted to finish it up, but we hadn't finished it up. And so I said, I'm going to treat it like it's a one shot, right? Like it's going to be, have a strong start. It's going to have its own hooks. It's going to have its own stuff. And it's going to kind of reteach the characters about what's going on, introduce NPCs that they saw before. But, you know, I think that the, the idea of kind of thinking about it like it's a new campaign that has this, these hooks that go back to the old campaign. It's probably a good way to kind of get everybody started on it again. Ellen T asks, I just got done running Waterdeep Dragon Heist and we are transitioning to Waterdeep Mad Mage. I'm actually stepping down as the DM so that uh, a close friend of mine can try his hand at this and so I can have a break. Do you have any advice or recommendations on what I can do to help facilitate a smooth transfer and support him as best I can? Yes, I have, I have thoughts on this and I would treat it very much. I think we've talked in previous in previous questions or previous episodes, and I know I've done a video about like how to be a good player, right? And as a DM, because you've been in the DM seat and now you're in the player seat, it's really important that you be a good player and a supportive player for that DM. And the things you can do to ensure that that's the case is make sure that your character is invested in the story of the campaign that they're running, not necessarily your campaign anymore. Now it's their campaign. So how do you support their campaign and their directions and their style with your character? How do you make sure that your character is well integrated with the other characters? That maybe your character is the one that's really helping to bring the other characters together. Like be a, be a supportive player. And as a DM, you know, you know what those things are. Keep track of them. Write down what makes a good player and, and do that stuff. I would not offer advice to them unless they ask. And even if they ask, I would be very careful about how you offer that advice because this is their campaign now. 
right? So I would not offer advice unless they ask. Otherwise, focus on yourself. Focus on your character. Focus on how your character can support the campaign they're running. Focus on how your character can support the other characters that are in it and bring them into the story, right? Be a good player first and, and foremost. Transferring stuff, you know, let you're, you're handing it over and it's their world now, right? And, and, at, at, at most, it's both of your worlds, but I don't think you get to say, as they start changing the world in ways that they think are cool, I don't think you get the opportunity to jump in and say, well, you're doing it wrong. This was the case. Again, unless they invite you in. If they invite you in to help you fill it out, you, you can do so carefully and recognizing that this is their world now. So I think that's my advice for that, right? Be a good, be a good player. Be a supportive, a good supportive player first. Chris B asks, I recently started a new campaign with ideas on how to set one up for Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master. One of the ways I drew my players in the world was to have them add elements to the world. Well, one of the elements they added surprised me in a good way, and it adds some political intrigue. They decided that uh, there's a council of nobles that rules the starting city are secretly cons consolidating power with neighboring towns and villages, sometimes forcibly, in order to form a new empire. So I figured I should make this a front for the council. Now, the thing is, this front is doing things completely unrelated to the other fronts. I'm concerned that this could cause confusion as to the story of the campaign. Should I worry about this or just embrace the path the PCs follow? I, I feel like having that as a side. So, so there's a couple ways you could handle it. One is you can try to think about how can the council get integrated into the main theme of the campaign if you're doing a very thematically focused campaign. An example would be what if you, what if you had like this this city council group in your Horde of the Dragon Queen and Rise of Tiamat games, you'd want to say like, well, how are they getting involved in the stuff going on with the Cult of the Dragon, right? If you're running it in Princes of the Apocalypse, how are they involved with the princes, of the elemental princes, right? The elemental cults. So you could try to think about how the council is involved in the theme. Or you can run a more sandboxy kind of adventure where there's this whole side plot going on with the council that is separate from it, but it adds some rich threads, some rich tapestry to the campaign because they, it feels like a living world. It feels like there's this other thing. And maybe the characters take a side quest and go get involved in that stuff. And then it's up to you to decide, well, does that mean the main theme of the campaign continues to roll on while they're doing this other stuff? You can turn that dial of urgency, right? You could turn the, you could say like, Whatever the main theme of the campaign is, you have hit a point where you have six months before you have to worry about whatever's happening there. And that six months, you can pivot over and now deal with the council, the corrupt council and, and them taking over these other towns. That can be an option. So you have kind of, a, I mean, you have a lot of choices, but we'll, we'll kind of think about two. And one is bring the council into the theme of the campaign if you want to keep it real focused, right? And the other one is let it operate separately and relax a little bit on timeline so that if the characters want to get involved in that, they can get involved in that. And it's not a mistake because it turns out this other problem is growing while they're gone. If you want to keep the urgency up, you can constantly turn the fire up under each side. So while they're doing this stuff, this stuff's getting hotter. Then they go, oh man, we should go over there. They go deal with that and it gets hotter over here. If your players dig that kind of urgency, you can do it, but the, the problem with that is you never feel like you're doing the right thing. And I've, I've run campaigns like that where I've had like three different, in, three different independent fronts, three different independent villains that were all going engaged. I actually did this in Icewind Dale when it was the, the legacy of the Crystal Shard. And I had three different independent villains that were all doing their, their things independently. And every time the players got involved with one, the other two were ratcheting up. 
right? Prince of the Apocalypse works this way too, that whichever princes you're, whichever apocalyptic, whichever elemental cults you're dealing with, the other cults are getting stronger until eventually one of them releases an elemental prince. Which one's it going to be, right? That That's sort of like whack-a-mole game. Sometimes that can be fun. Sometimes that can be frustrating because players will never feel like they're making the right choice. I've had players who said, I thought it was going to be really cool. I had a player who said this. I thought that was going to be really cool. And now it turns out I hate it, right? So you want to be a little careful with it. So those are some thoughts. Matt R says, you've mentioned that you don't allow peace and twilight clerics in your game. What parts of these builds do you find are OP? Would you recommend that others who don't know any better, like me, consider the same in their games? So in one case, I have personal experience with it. Twilight Clerics, I have personal experience. We had, a, we had a player who was playing a Twilight Cleric for about five or six levels in one of our games. And I have a Twilight Cleric that's in my Frostmating game now. It's a multi-class. Uh, they're primarily a Ranger, but they have some Twilight, Twilight Cleric some that they picked up as a multi-class. And my problem is twofold with the Twilight. I have three major issues with the Twilight Cleric that, that have now made it so that I will not allow it in future games that I've got. One... The amount of damage mitigation that occurs because of Twilight Sanctuary, I think it's called Twilight Sanctuary. So the, the Twilight Cleric has a channel divinity option called Twilight Sanctuary, which creates a huge aura, a very big, I think it's, it's, I think it's a 30 foot diameter, a 30 foot radius aura. And any ally who starts in that radius gains 1d8 plus the Cleric's level and temporary hit points, right? My, my problems with that specific function are twofold one is that is a lot it's actually i have three problems one that is a lot of temporary hit points to get every turn every turn every round players are getting 1d8 plus level in temporary hit points that's basically complete damage mitigation for most monsters so if you if you have a lot of monsters attacking usually what happens is a lot of monsters are attacking a lot of different characters they're inflicting little bits of damage in many cases, you'll never break through the bubble of temporary hit points. It means there's no challenge. Most of the time, there's not going to be a challenge for the number of monsters. In my Frostmating game, it meant that I was constantly adding new damage types to monsters just to bust through the layer of temporary hit points they had, right? If you wanted anything to be challenged, it meant that Ice Ghouls would do an extra 2d6 ice damage on top of their normal attacks. Why? To bust through that bubble of temporary hit points because otherwise you're never doing any damage to characters and then there's no threat there's no challenge players feel like everything is easy I, I i did a lot of that a lot of like adding damage and that's a dial you can turn right like you can you can figure out oh the barbarians set fire to their blades and now the blades do an extra 2d6 fire damage plus the damage they did normally but you're doing that all the time and it becomes pretty clear that like you're just doing this to bust through the temporary hit points right that's one problem i have with it uh, is the amount of damage mitigation the other major problem with it, though, is that it takes up time every turn that wasn't there. It's creating another action that doesn't exist every turn for every character inside that aura, which is the I gain temporary hit points action. It's not a bonus action to do it. It's not a reaction to do it. It's not part of an action. You just do it. It says at the beginning of the character's turn, they gain 1d8 plus level, which means it's your turn, you get to roll a d8 and add your level. And that's before a bonus action. And it ends up creating time, right? So like we were house ruling all over the place. Like, okay, we're just gonna, you know, that the cleric would roll once and say, okay, this is the temp hit points that everybody gets at the beginning of their turn so that not everybody had to roll it every time, right? 
And that made it swingier because it meant if you rolled an eight, that meant everybody got tons of temporary hit points. If you rolled a one, it meant they didn't get very many. So it didn't average out. But it was better than the alternative because constantly reminding people. And I remember the player who had it asked me and said like, hey, can you remind people to take it? And I'm like, no, <laughs> like that's your deal, right? Because it's like, now I got to remember so nobody remembered and then they would remember later and add it later and then it was a roll and it was this extra roll and you'd have to remember like how much is it again it added a lot of extra time to the game right a lot of extra time the third problem with the twilight cleric is they get access to a spell called circle of power which they get earlier than paladins get it because it's a fourth level spell i think paladins or fourth or fifth level spell paladins don't get it till much later in their career but suddenly the, the, the Twilight Cleric gets access to it. And Circle of Power is a crazy powerful spell. Again, really huge diameter and dramatically reduces the amount of damage that people will take from spells and areas of effect because it gives advantage on mag spells and magical effects, advantage to everybody. And it gives them, if they take half damage, they instead take no damage, right? Very powerful spell. Circle of Power is a really, really, really powerful spell. I would say it's overpowered except for the fact that paladins get it so late that it makes sense that they get it then. But I've seen it completely destroy high, I was talking about adding extra damage to high challenge rating monsters. That's one of the reasons. So those are three reasons that, that, that the Twilight Cleric, in my opinion, is, is overpowered enough that it's just, it's, tr it's too troublesome to deal with in my group. I have heard the same thing about Peace Clerics enough that I've said, I don't, I don't think I want Peace Clerics in my game either. So I've decided to not include these in my, in my games. Peace Clerics have the ability to add a D4 to and pretty much any D20 roll, and it stacks with Bless, which essentially means if you do Bless plus this, that's 2D4, which is the equivalent of a plus five bonus that isn't advantage so then if you get advantage on it and guidance now it's 2d20 plus 3d4 right it's it, it it's just like why are we bothering to roll anymore if you're going to stack so many dice like attribute checks aren't meant to be a dice pool so when you add this kind of stuff it's 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 a bit too much i think so they i think they that both of those went overboard you have a different question though which is do i recommend you remove them from your game i can't answer that for you you need to look at it yourself and you need to decide uh what to do with it i am not going to say that you should remove it i am right and, and for me it's easier for my twilight cleric in my wednesday game he had chosen it before i had said anything about not having it right so we didn't i didn't discount it for the campaign so i didn't want to go back and say you can't play that class he was willing to but i said no you chose it okay we'll deal with it and also it's a it's a multi-class so he's not ever going to be like 17th level in it right but we did say here's how we're going to handle the channel divinity here's how we're going to handle twilight sanctuary and instead of having it do it every turn and do it indefinitely, he can cast Twilight Sanctuary once. He can use his channel divinity to do Twilight Sanctuary once, then roll a D8 plus his level and give temporary hit points to everybody in that aura once. And that seems like a significant nerf, except he uses it all the time, which means it's not that bad a nerf because he's blowing his channel divinity to give everybody all these temporary hit points because it's a lot of temporary hit points, right? It's eight it's like on the average like eight or nine temporary hit points for six characters, right? That's a lot of extra temporary hit points to get. 
And it works and it's instant, right? It's an action for him. Everybody gets it. They write it down and they're done, right? So time-wise, it's very fast. Power-wise, it's pretty good because everybody gets them. It does mitigate a lot of damage, but it doesn't mitigate it continually throughout a big fight. It only mitigates it for that first round because they're, they're losing their temps. That was a really good check. And then the other one is you could just remove circle of power and say that's not one of the spells. So you could do that and then the Twilight Cleric is fine. I, I kind of think like I'm taking bigger machete hacks and just saying no twilight, no twilight, no peace clerics. Right. And then, and then it's just easier to do that than it is to argue. Cause then it's like designer mode. And they're like, well, what if I did this instead? Right. So that's really tough. William D breaking up is hard to do. What are the signs that your group is not a good fit for you, be it DM or player? And what are some tips for how to do it as painlessly as possible? That is a really it's a, this is the, you know, probably the toughest problem next to finding a good group in the first place, right? Finding the right people to, that, that fit well at your game, finding people generally is hard to do. Next hardest is realizing that it's not, that things are not a good fit, right? And what to do about it. And I'm, I'm very lucky that I've had to do this very few times, right? I've just, and, and, and very lucky. I'm going to I'm going to roll back a little bit though and say the the best way to handle this is to try to do everything you can to make sure somebody is a good fit before they come to your regular table, right? I'm going to take this from the approach of a DM because that's the generally approach. Try to do everything you can. Invite them to one-shot games, you, you know, talk to them about the kind of games that they like, you know, try to try to do stuff to get an idea of whether or not it's a good fit. And one important thing to remember in all of this is it's not good and bad players. There are, I am sure, and if you go like to, you know, the, the D&D horror stories, you will find both bad players and bad DMs, right? I don't, I don't think it's inappropriate to say there are such thing as bad players and bad DMs, generally speaking. But most of the time, it's not, it's just not a good fit, Right. And it says like that you know, your group is not a good fit for you. And, and I think it's important to remember that, that it's not a bad player. It's not somebody being a jerk, hopefully. That could be, and that's a different story. But it's just not, a, it's not, you know, this, the type of game that somebody wants to play and the type of players that are playing it aren't good. It's, I think, what are the signs? I mean, if you're not having fun, you're not having fun, right? And if, if you dread going rather than enjoy going, that's probably not great right? That's probably not great. If you, if you dread running it or you dread running it for a particular person, or you're worried about like, well, this person again, what am I going to do? Right? That's probably a good, how do you handle it? There's not a great, I don't think there's a great way. I think being straight and upfront is important. I think that taking it objectively is important. I think recognizing that you're, you don't like your, your goal in this isn't to like teach somebody something i don't think right like in my opinion i'm not trying to make a better person i'm trying to solve the situation for this game right now right it's a different situation if you're trying to help somebody with their own issues than it is to say all right now i'm just helping my game so it's not up to you it's not up to you to try to work with them to make them better even though your, their goal is how do we how do we solve this particular problem recognizing that they're not they're not bad you're not bad it's just not a good fit i think it's really important say like i you know this isn't working out right i don't think i i, I this isn't the right i don't think this is the right game for you right i think that that it's a hard thing to say but i think 
that's the approach that I would take. And be why, you know, let's talk about why, right? Say like, this, is, this isn't working for this aspect, right? And if there is a way to kind of work through the behavior, you can try to work through the behavior, but direct is important, right? Being, being both direct, but not confrontational, which is really hard. It's like, there's not an easy, there's not an easy way to do this, right? But it's important to have the conversations, have them one-on-one. I don't think group, I don't think doing it in a group, 95% of the time doing it in a group is probably not the right answer. I think doing a one-on-one, if you can do a face-to-face conversation or at least a video call so that you can, you know, you can have your mentot brain and absorb data, right, from from watching them. I think that's really important. Writing writing it down ahead of time, thinking about what you're what you want, what you need, what you need to get to. I don't think it hurts. Like you don't want to recite something when you're talking to them, but getting your thoughts together, I think, can really help, right? I think that spending some time to say, you know, what do I what do I need, what do I want, or what do I need from this situation. What are the, you know, what's in the way right now? And, and how do we solve these things? How do I get there, right? I think those are powerful questions to ask yourself to kind of analytically look at the situation. What's the situation now? What do I need? And how do I get there, right? And, and writing those things down, I think can be really good. It, but the reality is this is a hard, this is a hard problem. Try to, try to keep emotions out of it. You don't want to attack them. You know, you, you want to look at it objectively. Recall that it could be you right? It's not them. It could be you. It could be a bad fit, right? But you could say like, look, you know, if you have a player, you can say, I don't think that you're happy with the game. And I don't think that we're happy, you know, with, with how things are working out. Right. Like, I don't know. I mean, it's tough. Yeah. It's a tough problem. And I don't think there's a great, you know, we could say all the things in the world, but it's going to be hard when it has to be done. So I hope, that answers that question. That's a hard, that's a hard question to, to end with, but I think that's probably a real good one. So we will do, we will do more questions next week. So I want to thank everybody for hanging out with me on this uh, Sunday morning to talk about this stuff. Thanks to Richard, Richard Green for hanging out in the chat while we went and talked about Southlands. Thanks to all of you in Twitch for hanging out with me today. For those of you uh, watching on YouTube. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed this show, you can help me out by subscribing to the Sly Flourish newsletter, supporting me dile- directly on Patreon, signing up for my YouTube videos, or picking up any of my books. Thank you very much. See you next week. Have a great week and get out there and play some d d